Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey there, Cynical listeners. Kaiser here. We're doing a two-parter with our guest today. Tune in next week to hear part two and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep current with the latest news on China with a free email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Scottsdale, Arizona. With me here is Jeremy Goldcorn, now 40 bucks richer because he gave me a 20 to play in the Lao Ji in this ridiculous casino resort that we're staying at. <laughs> Jeremy, man, how are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Very happy I gave my money to the Chinese guy to gamble with. <laughs> it was a smart move. Don't spend it all in one place. Uh, anyway, uh, we are here in Scottsdale for a very special conversation with someone I've wanted to meet for many, many years. I'm sure that Sidney Rittenberg is a name familiar to many of our listeners. He is, of course, the man who stayed behind, the first American to actually join the Chinese Communist Party, a man who became personally acquainted with many of the towering figures of the Chinese Revolution, including Mao Zedong himself, Zhou Enlai, Zhu De, Jiang Qing, and many, many others. And as lots of you already know, Sydney was imprisoned in two long stretches in solitary confinement, in fact, from uh, 1949 to 1956, and then again from February of 1968 to November of 1977. He remained in China until 1980 when he returned to the United States, where he started a very successful consulting business. Sidney Rittenberg, it is a great honor to welcome you to Seneca, and we thank you so much for welcoming us uh, into your, your lovely home to record with you. Well, I'm very happy to be here with you. Sydney, let's start off with your early life. You are a Charlestonian and also you're Jewish. Do you think that being a Jew in the American South had something to do with the strong sense of social justice that you had in your early life? Yes, I really do, because uh, I grew up in Charleston with a certain amount of anti-Semitism, to which I was quite sensitive as a little boy. And the other big factor in my makeup was that my mother's father was an old Russian revolutionary who had emigrated to this country. And when I used to go up to New Jersey in the summer, he and his friends made me very sensitive to prejudice against black people. They used to tease me for being a... For being a, a white uh, southerner. Yeah, yeah, white <laughs> southerner. So that turned me around, determined not to be prejudiced. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's terrific. Uh, but during your early childhood, you weren't really connected in any meaningful way to China. But you are from Charleston, South Carolina, and Charlestonians like to joke that they, they share three things in common with the Chinese. What, what are those again? Well, uh, we eat rice every day. <laughs> we worship our ancestors, and we don't speak English. 
<laughs> I can attest to the third at least. Uh, although that that Charleston brogue you say is is a. Uh, is, is vanishing now. Just about gone, because the young people grow up watching TV, and they pretty much learn their language from that, I think. Yeah, so the feng yen disappears. Right. <laughs> uh, but did you have any interest in, in China before you actually began studying the language? Well, actually, I did when I was four years old. My uh, mother, I was being a pest in the kitchen, and my mother gave me a little pail and a shovel and took me out into the garden and told me to dig a hole, and she said, if you dig it deep enough, you get to China. <laughs> so it it failed. I dug and dug, but then I hit water, so that didn't work. Aside from that, I had no particular interest whatsoever in China. And it wasn't until actually you were you were drafted into the U.S. Armed Forces and shipped off to language camp, right? In Stanford, is that correct? At Stanford, right. I was taken out of the infantry based on a language aptitude test and assigned to go to Stanford and learn Japanese to be in military government after the war. This was spring of 43. And I did not want to be in military government, and I wanted to come home right after the war, so I talked myself out of Japanese and into Chinese so I could get home early. And, and you did, right? I'm just, I did. My usual gift for prophecy in only 35 years, I was back <laughs> home. So, Sydney, what were your ideological convictions at the time that you were drafted uh, in the year or so before you went to China? You were already a member of the American Communist Party and you'd been an active labor organizer not too far from where Kaiser now lives. But uh, what were your feelings about the Chinese communists? Well, really, when I went into the army, first of all, uh, I had to cut all my connections with the U.S. Communist Party in order to... That was the party regulation. You couldn't be a party member in the army. But, you know, I tried to keep in touch with people. And um, I really knew nothing about the Chinese communists, except I had the general impression that they were not really kosher communists, that Stalin was the real deal, and that Mao Zedong was kind of a, a left-wing agrarian a revolutionary, not really a Marxist. Yeah, and that's that's fairly accurate. He wasn't exactly doctrinaire, now was he? <laughs> no. But actually, your first postings though were in Kunming, uh, after which you were sent to Shanghai, and that was, it was through the offices of Madame Sun Yat-sen or Sun Qingling that you landed a job with the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Organization as an observer, and that allowed you really to get around the country quite a, yes. a bit. And you had contact both with communists and, and with the KMT. I want to ask you specifically what your impressions were of the nationalist officials that you encountered during that time with the UN Relief and Rehabilitation. Well, you know, it was, it was an impression of uh, just unbelievable, open, undisguised corruption. And um, both corruption in the sense of standard routine bribery and of just moral degradation. When I was still in Kunming, I came upon a car up on Western Mountain, one of the big scenic areas of Kunming. I came on a limousine that was stalled because of a flat tire, and the uniformed chauffeur looked very slick, but he didn't know how to change a tire. 
So I stopped my little Jeep, and I got out, and I changed my tire for the guy. It turned out to be the KMT Minister of Education. And to thank me for changing his tire, he invited me to go home with him for dinner. So I went home, and we had dinner, and it was a scene like the old Charles Lawton movie of Henry VIII Mm. eating. For example, they'd bring on a big platter of um, chicken drumsticks, and they would tear away at the drumsticks, and after eating them, they'd just fling it over their shoulder so it landed on the floor, and there were servants to pick up the the discarded food from the floor. Oh, medieval times, my God. Yeah. yeah. When we were talking earlier, you told us a story about something you witnessed on a train. Yeah. Could you tell that for us? Sure. And um, another time when we, I was with the UN Relief uh, Association, and we were shipping 55-pound sacks of flour up to... Hunan province in central, north, south central China, one of the worst of the famine areas. And um, so we were on this little train that was on a narrow gauge railway. It consisted of Japanese army trucks that had been fitted with rail wheels, and it ran on this narrow gauge railway. And that's the way we went chug, chug, chug up towards Changsha. So about halfway there, the train suddenly came to a stop near the city of Yueyang, and um, we didn't know why we were stopped, so I got out and walked up to the front, and I saw that there were two KMT soldiers who had come down the track towards our train, pumping one of these old-fashioned hand cars. Mm -hmm. They had been captured by the KMT gendarmes who were on our train. And when I arrived, the gendarmes were tying their hands behind their back with some bailing wire. And I asked the gendarme sergeant what was going on, and he said they they violated the laws on safety of transportation, and um, so we're going to shoot them. And at the same time, I could hear the men protesting, these two men. They came under orders from their commanding officer in the next town up the rails called Ninxiang. He had ordered them to come to Yueyang to buy him cigarettes, and that's why they were on the rail. But no excuses. They were hustled up across a little ridge, and we heard bang, 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 and then the gendarmes came back and got on the train. and Some Qin Shi Huang action here. This is just, yeah. oh my God. And nobody said a word. Nobody seemed to find it strange. Then we got to Yueyang for the night. We stayed in this little Chinese inn. And when we got up in the morning, we found that all of our relief flour had been donated mainly by people from the English-speaking countries that it had all been stolen in the middle of the night. And we found later that uh, it had gone into the headquarters of the KMT Army Logistics Department, which was in Yueyang, and that they shipped it down south to 
the port of Zhenjiang in Guangdong province, mm -hmm. from where it was shipped down to Southeast Asian cities like Manila, Singapore, and even to Calcutta, where it was bought back by our relief agencies. The same relief agencies? Same relief agencies. After having been donated, they had to buy it back. And then, as an observer, my job was to investigate things like that and see what was really happening. So I found, with the help of Chinese friends connected with the Chinese communists, I found that the mastermind behind this plan was the American head of relief for that province, for Hunan province. And this was a man that, on the surface, was the most humble, pious Christian that you could ever imagine. He's the only person I ever saw who, when you ate at his table, he used to say grace at the beginning of the meal. He would stop you in the middle to say grace again. and Between courses, presumably. <laughs> yeah, and at the end he would say grace a third time. Well, that night I was awakened around midnight by his Chinese woman secretary who told me how this man continually raped her and oh, he God. threatened her, if you talk, you lose your job. She and her husband and three children would starve in the famine of those days. And um, that was the kind of uh, ogre that was in charge of relief. And he was part of the deal of stealing and transshipping and reselling relief goods. How high up did this really go, this, this corruption within your own agency? Well, the real basic problem is that regulations demanded that we give all the relief materials to the KMT Relief Organization, which was headed by T.L. Sung, Sung Liang, the younger brother of the premier, T.V. Sung. And so the corruption started right up at the top. They were making hay out of relief goods by selling them on the black market. And, and you know, I wasn't alone in being aware of this. Quite a number of Americans quit at that time because it was so dirty. You actually quit as well, right? I quit. I quit uh, after we came back. I wrote up the report, including the criminal behavior of this... Uh, this pious Christian yeah. man. Yeah, and um, the vice director of the relief agency for China, who was supposed to be the liberal in the leadership, invited me to dinner at the Park Hotel, which was the best at the time. And um, over the dinner table, he told me that they were very pleased with my work. They were promoting me two grades up. And uh, he said, we're sending you, we know that you like to visit communist areas. I'd already been to one new Fourth Army communist area in the meantime. He said, we're going to send you to Manchuria, where there are the biggest communist areas. And then he said, but I'd like for you to do, do me two personal favors. The first favor was that... Uh, at the time, every UNRWA foreign employee 
in Shanghai received $16 a day per diem. That was supposed to cover your food, shelter, and clothing, transportation. So in Shanghai, if you were outside in the field, not in Shanghai, you got $32 U.S. a day. And he said, we've observed that you never take your per diem. And he said, we appreciate your dedication, but don't you see it makes things hard for other people when the auditors come out from New York and they find that some people get along without a per diem. <laughs> they begin to ask questions. That was demand. Actually, my food, shelter, and transportation were totally paid for by the Relief Administration. So I had virtually no expenses. And at that time in Shanghai, you couldn't walk down the street any day without seeing corpses lying on the sidewalk. What, what year was this? This was 19... Uh, this was... 46? Uh, yes, it was like February 46. Okay. The, uh, the other personal request he had was that I had put in my report about this monster in Hunan province, and he said, in your report, you raise problems about his personal life. And he said, I don't think we want to meddle in the man's personal life. So rape apparently was just yeah. somebody's personal life. Yeah. So um, we'd like for you to remove that from the report. <laughs> God. Well... So the next, you know, I was so angry. I just got up and walked away from the table without saying a word. And the next morning I went down and quit. I was so angry, kind of stupidly, I didn't even take my last month's pay. I just wanted out of there. So how did you get from there to, to Yan'an, to the, the well, communist space? I, I booked passage on a ship to San Diego from Shanghai. Long Beach. I guess. That's the wrong way, actually. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I went to say goodbye to Madame Sun Yat-sen, who was a good friend. She got me my job in UNRWA, actually, through an American friend of hers. And um, when I went to say goodbye, she said, well, you met Vice Chairman Zhou Enlai. He was called Vice Chairman at the time. And before you go back to the States, you should go up to Nanjing and say goodbye. So great. So I, I went to Nanjing, and uh, I went up to his uh, residence, and uh, I, I rang the bell, and Zhang Wenjin, his secretary, who later became ambassador, ambassador to, the US, to yeah. Washington, came to the door, and he asked me to come back at 8 o'clock and have breakfast with Zhou Enlai. So I did. He told me that Joe hadn't gone to bed till 5 o'clock. He stayed up through the night doing his work of whatever he was doing in leadership of the underground party in the KMT areas. And so I did go, and um, at the breakfast table, Joe and I told me that an American friend was visiting in Shanghai, that he was going to see her. Her name was Mildred Price. She was from North Carolina, and I knew Mildred and that whole family very well. So he said, it would be a good idea if you went and talked to her. She's going to Yan'an, 
and see if you can get her to take you to Yan'an with you, with her. Then you can meet Chairman Mao and talk with him, and you can see the things that we've built up in the areas that we've been in for a long time. Then when you go back to America, you'll have more to talk about and write about. So I said, great. And I went to Shanghai and contacted Mildred, and um, she took me as far as Beijing. (laughs) And in Beijing, at that time, the U.S. Army had a a weekly flight from Beijing to Yan'an. This is sort of the result of the Dixie Mission? Yes, uh, because the Dixie Mission people were still in Yan'an, and the plane flew up every Friday to take them supplies Mm -hmm. and flew back on uh, Saturday, I guess it was. And um, every American that had ever applied had been accommodated on that flight to Yan'an, except for me. I was the only exception. Why? why? Were you ever given a reason? Well, the American representative there was something Johnson, who later became Assistant Secretary uh, of State for the Far East. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was just absolutely down on me. Marshal Ye Jing, the chief Chinese representative, went to see him personally to ask that he put me on the list as a personal favor, and he refused. I think the reason was, but this is speculation, I think the reason was that he and that monster in Hunan were somehow connected. Were connected, both being sort of old China hands, and that he held that report against me. Because the report did go out, the full report. Did that man ever get his comeuppance? The, the monster in Hunan, the rapist? I, I have no idea what happened to mm, him. I'm yeah. sure he didn't. So instead of going to Yan'an, I had to change and take the train to Kalgan, Zhangjiakou. Yeah, Zhangjiakou, right. And it was, it was, that trip was amazing. We got to the Great Wall on the, on the KMT train. And at the Great Wall, the, um, KMT train stopped at a place called Qinglong Chao, and then you walked up over the crest and through the gate in the wall and down to the first communist station, which was a little place called Duanzhong. And um, on that day, the KMT train stopped, and it was announced that there was a total... um, It was forbidden to travel further on, and they had armed forces to block the way. So there was a young woman on the train with me, and when she heard the announcement that it was blocked, she ran over to me and she said, please let me pretend to be your servant. I'll carry your luggage and get me across the line because my husband is in Calgan, and I've come all the way from Manchuria to be with him. And so we did that. So I got up to the KMT armed guards, and they held up their hand, can't pass. So I produced my American passport, and I pretended not to know Chinese, and I just stomped on the ground and cursed and shouted. So they rushed up to their guardhouse and 
brought down the battalion commander who took his cap off and bowed and ushered me across the line with my so-called servant. Then we get to the communist train. I get on the train and everything's fine. Big welcome from the railroad people until we get to Calgan. When we get to Calgan, I get off the train And all of a sudden, this bunch of young people in uniform come up and start shouting at me and saying, why are you coming to our area? Who sent you? What are you coming to do? Who are you? What's your mission? Shouting at me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) totally unimpressed by my American passport or anything else. So while this is going on, the official reception, General uh, Tsai, arrive on the scene, and they criticize these young people. And I said, no, no, it's wonderful. I said, it's really a different country. You know, this is not a country where a foreigner can stamp his foot and get whatever he wants. This is really an independent country. So you made it then, uh, that spring then, all the way to to Yan'an? That, um, it was in um, September. Oh, okay. What happened was I I was working at the Xinhua News Agency in Calgan, helping the English department, and um, I lived right next door to a colonel from General Fuzhou's army, he being one of uh, Chiang Kai-shek's armies, but really a local outfit, not loyal to Jiang. And so they were negotiating with the communists on a deal to join together against Jiang. While they were negotiating, General Fuzui suddenly swept down to the outskirts of Calgan and threatened to occupy it. So a cable came from Yan'an, from Commander-in-Chief Zhu De, asking me to go to Yan'an and helped the Xinhua News Agency there, which I was delighted to do. And it was very impressive because when I left, I have to walk through four provinces and in several places through the enemy lines, through the KMT lines, to get to Yan'an. So what did I have by way of ID? General Nyerung Jun, who was the commander of that area, Calgan, wrote out a message on a piece of paper saying that so-and-so is an American friend and I call on armed forces and people along the way to give him whatever help he needs. Signed, Nyerung Jun, and stamped with his great red seal. And with that little piece of paper, I traveled for 45 days. I needed food, I got food. I needed lodging, I got lodging. Whatever I needed was there just with that piece of paper. Wow. And I was thinking, you know, the president of the United States couldn't do that. (laughs) So you went through Hebei, parts of Inner Mongolia. I went uh, through Inner Mongolia, Shanxi, uh, Hebei, and Shanxi. 
Mostly on, on foot. You were walking. Mostly on yeah. foot. What a journey. So, Sydney, in, in the film The Revolutionary, which tells the story of your life, and we don't want to you know, rehash the same story. We encourage our listeners to watch it. But you say that uh, one of your motivations to join the Chinese Communist Party was because if you were going to stay at Yan'an, you were going to be cut off from the outside world. And you didn't also want to be cut off from the inside world of, of if you were not a party member. So were you already comfortable at this point, sort of crossing the line from observer and foreign supporter to being a, a, an active participant? Oh, yes. I wanted to be an active participant very much. I didn't want to be an outsider because... You know, I was used to organizing work in the South. I was used to being one of the boys. And uh, in the South, we were very sensitive to people that were prideful and put themselves above the workers and so on. We considered them phonies. Anybody that bragged about what I've done for the working people, we considered to be not quite trustworthy. Uh. So I didn't want to be an outsider looking in. And, of course, that problem was impossible to completely solve. Well, you got right out of the armchair, though, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and there were other left-leaning Americans who had made their way to Yan'an and who were in other Chinese cities as well. Talk about a little bit your relationship with some of those. I mean, and, and you, you crossed paths with some of the real luminaries among them. Did you know, for example, Edgar Snow or any of these others? Or were you influenced by his writings? I knew Snow when he came back to China in 1960. Right. And later in sixty. The other side of the river, right? Yeah. Um, that's when I got to know Snow. But not, not in his earlier no. years? No. Okay. But I, I was influenced by Red Star of China, by, especially by the biography of Mao that was in it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I mean, we're jumping ahead here, though. Did, did you think that squared with the Mao that you then went on to meet? I did. Oh, interesting. I did. Yeah. I thought it was very, it, it was a good uh, description. While, while we're on the subject of the other uh, foreign leftists in China, I think you say, I, I can't remember if it's in your book or in The Revolutionary, uh, that more than 80% of the foreigners helping the Chinese at, at the time of the communist takeover were Jewish. Um, and, you know, I, I, just some of the names, of course, that I know, Sidney Shapiro, David Crook, Israel Epstein, uh, Jane Sachs Hodes, uh, Sion of the Sachs Go of the, the Sachs of Sachs Goldman fame, so and Goldman you Sachs, right? uh, Goldman Sachs fame. <laughs> um, so you know what, what's the connection? I've asked you about you know being Jewish already, but there seems to be that, that something was going on at that time. I wish I knew there was no connection, prior connection between these people. In those days, in Mao's day, in order to come and work in China you absolutely had to be formally introduced by the Communist Party of your country. Hmm. Otherwise, they would not accept anyone to work there. So these, But these people, I mean, there were Jews from Peru, from Colombia, from Lebanon, from Germany, from England, from Italy, from France. No connection between them. Why is that? I really don't know, except that I think um, that a fair proportion of Jews tend to sympathize with the underdog, sympathize with victims of 
of prejudice and so on. The Chinese was certainly that. And um, what about the broader connection between Jews and Chinese that that is so often been commented on? You see, so many of the the sort of uh, biracial couples uh, consist of a, a Jewish man or a Jewish woman and a Chinese man or a Chinese woman. Well, and we know that the future president of the One World will be a Hong Kong Chinese with a Jewish wife and mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it is written. But you you know it's. Uh, I, I have two books at home in Washington, which expand on the theory that the, the Chinese are the descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Yeah, I've seen <laughs> that. I've seen that idea. So, as, as somebody who has had personal relationships with so many of the now mythic figures of of the Revolutionary Period, uh, we naturally have to ask you about some of them. Let's start with Mao. If you were a modern psychoanalyst and you had the guy on your couch, as it were. Uh, how would you diagnose uh, his his pathologies? What would you think you would understand of him now, having in- encountered him and then having you know seen his life's work? You know, he was a man of tremendous mental powers, intellectual powers. I think, no question, he had, and also he had a sort of artistic temperament, in that he could take a very complex political issue and boil it down to essentials and put it in very popular language. He would produce these ringing slogans that a, every 10-year-old child could could recite. Nobody in China does that today that I can see. No, no really good slogans. Um, Quite the opposite, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dull as dishwater. So that was one thing about him. And also, his analyses were deeply ingrained with humor. So when you sat and talked with him, he would keep you in stitches. And he would laugh, too. It's very funny. Like um, when he was describing one day, what were the mistakes made by the infamous Wang Ming, who represented Stalin's position, really, and whose um, wrong military tactics led to their defeat and the necessity to make the long march, which was a retreat. What was wrong with Wang Ming? And he said there were three great principles that Wang Ming couldn't understand. The first one was that people have to eat. He says it sounds very simple, but he couldn't understand it. So he used to drive our troops into areas where we were not known, where people didn't support us, where they hid the grain, where the men couldn't get enough to eat. Second principle was people walk on their feet. So he used to walk the troops day and night, day and night, day and night, till the feet were covered with blisters and they could hardly move. The third, he said... To be fair, Wang Ming understood half of it. The third was that bullets can kill people. And Wang Ming understood that our bullets could kill the enemy, but he didn't understand the enemy bullets could kill our people. So he lined them up in regular formation and marched them into battle because he thought, we're a big country now, we have to fight like a big country. 
And he used the, which I didn't understand the time I had to ask somebody, he used the Hunanese word for bullets. Not Zidane, but Paulza. <laughs> Paulza. Paulza. So very, very, very humorous. So, and I thought when I knew Mao before entering Beijing, I thought that he was the best listener that I ever talked to. I mean, he asked you questions and he focused every fiber of his being on hearing your answer so that you forgot you were talking to a famous individual and you just talked very uh, uh, normally. And the first, from the first time I saw him after he came to power, which was first time to sit and talk with him, was 1963, and he really had changed. He was not the great listener than he had been. He, he held forth, and you listened. And did you see uh, before then, when you were still at Yan'an, did you have, were there any signs of, you know, his criminality that became evident to you later on? Of his... Criminality. The seeds, were they, were they already visible in the man? Not to me. So the Mao you met in 63 again was already radically transformed. Yes, I would say he was. Um, you know, in, in Yan'an, Mao, Zhou Enlai, Liu Shaoqi, they walked around the village streets and uh, anybody came up and said hi and talked with them. There's no big deal. They, he usually, he had one guard with him who he would keep at a great distance. He would not allow the guard to be close to him because he didn't want to frighten people away. He wanted to be open to people to come up and talk. And, of course, all that changed drastically after coming to power. Well, he had experienced an awful lot between forty-nine and, and 1963, including being denounced by Peng Dehuai and Yeah, and, you know, I think what happened after coming to power the underside of the man, the narrow peasant mentality, began coming to the fore. Envy, jealousy of other people. Uh, I remember his, yeah. his saying in 1956, he said there are two kinds of people that I'm afraid of. One is the democratic capitalists who are part of the United Front, and the others are the big intellectuals. Mm. Why am I afraid of them? Because they ask too many questions. What about his wife, his third wife, Jiang Qing, who was another person you, you got to know in Yan'an and yes, who also, indeed. I believe, changed quite yes, a lot indeed. and would be of enormous consequence to your, to your own life. Yes. Can you tell us about her, um, you know, what you understand about her well, personality? She, she was like two different people, you know. When I knew her in Yan'an, I used to see her quite a number of times, and including at the regular Saturday night dances. She was rather a re retiring, demure sort of person. She used to complain about uh, poor health and generally being very quiet. And, um, you know, she was not treated as any big deal. I remember New Year's Eve... 1946, so the day before 47, when I went 
with the leaders of Xinhua News Agency to wish Mao a Happy New Year. So Jiang Qing was holding the fort at the gate to their house, sitting in the gatehouse. And in the outer gatehouse was the head of the Communist Security Service, Li Kenang, who was a very fond of practical jokes. And when we went there and asked to go in and see the chairman, Li Kenang called Jiang Qing on the phone, and he said, so-and-so is here to see the chairman, and if you don't let them in immediately, someone in your family will die. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> he also said, uh, we have a comrade Lee here, He's a member of my family. Do you have foreigners in your family? <laughs> so, I mean, she was no big deal in those days. God help anybody that talked like that to her during the Cultural Revolution. I can imagine. I can imagine. You know, when I, and when I used to go and have dinner with him in the 60s, she would be at the table and the most she would ever say was pass the Gumbao Jiding or something like that. She took no part in the political conversation. Very demure. So in the Cultural Revolution, first time I saw it was December 12th, 1966. I don't know if you ever saw the old Hollywood movie of Tale of Two Cities with Blanche Yurka, who played Madame Defarge. Mm-hmm. And she was ranting and raving like a maniac. And that's the way Jiang Qing was. So like a different person entirely. So that seemed to happen just in the space of a year or so, did it? Well, I don't know when it started because I didn't see her. But uh, just a few months into the Cultural Revolution, that's the way she was. In the space of one hour in that meeting on December 12th, she condemned three leading generals to be overthrown as counter-revolutionaries. Only one of them was actually overthrown. Liu Zhijian, who was one of the deputy um, chairman of the... Social Military Commission. Uh, the oh. Joint Chiefs, we'd say. Uh, the other two, her assistants put his name down, but they didn't carry it out. Wow, wow. What about Zhou Enlai? I mean, he's much beloved by many Chinese people still, and yet he is actually coming for quite a bit of reassessment in, in recent years, uh, you know, criticized for his supposed spinelessness, for knuckling under uh, under Tumau, for not maybe offering up as much resistance as he might have. What, what do you make of this sort of um, revisionist take on on Well, Premier I don't Joe? agree with it. I mean, what do they want from the guy? He had all he could do to preserve his existence so that he could play a role, a positive role, you know. He protected lots of people. A lot of cultural relics. Yeah, absolutely. cultural relics and individuals. But he could not protect everyone. He couldn't protect Helong. Right. So when Mao said give him up, he had to give him up because he himself was on the, always on the border of being overthrown. So I don't think it's right to expect more of him than he could do. When I was about to be arrested, 
he held meetings with the Beijing Red Guard leaders to try to figure out ways to get me out so that I wouldn't be arrested again, but couldn't do it. When I was in prison, and I had the right from the beginning to see the newspaper, the daily paper, and to be able to borrow books to read. And after it was all over, they told me that that was on orders from Joe and Lai. So, I mean, this, this was in your, your first stint or your second? Both. Second stint. Oh, second stint. Second okay. stint. And, um, you know, he died before I got That's out. Right. But after I did get out, I was. Deng Yingchao, his wife, had a reception at which she. She said how highly he thought of me and so on. But in in in, in 1973, he did uh, sort of give it to you know, he stick did. the knife in again. He did. He was mistaken. I did not support the people that he thought I support. But the significant thing there to me was I was in prison on spy charges. I wasn't allowed to talk about anything except my spy story which meant that I couldn't talk. And Joe said nothing about being a spy. He said that I'd made bad mistakes in the Cultural Revolution. And from what I heard, that greatly upset Jiang Qing, who was there, who was going for the spy story. So, Sidney, um, at Yan'an, if I can go back a little bit again, um, you observed rectification campaigns, uh, self-criticism, uh, occasional brutality even. Uh, and in you, your book, you talk about the difficulties you had subordinating your individuality to, to the collective. So did you ever imagine at that time that you'd become a victim of such party tactics? Never. I should have. <laughs> I should have, but I did I'm not very suspicious by nature. And neither time, especially the first time, you know, I should have seen very clear signs that I was, something was about to happen to me, but I didn't see it. So it came as a total shock. I think a lot of people would, be, would, would say that you were doing exactly this sort of thing, though. That, that you were participating in kind of the denunciations of, of, of rightists. And- yes. And, I was, and that not all of them were, were 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 at all culpable. I think most of them were not. Most or all of them. That's the one thing which, in prison, I deeply, deeply regretted. Everything else, I thought, okay, is fair game. If you're right, you're right. If you're wrong, you're wrong. But I deeply regretted having been having joined in the factional struggle of. Chinese against Chinese, and taking part in the denunciation of people that were really good people. The big fight of Chinese against Chinese in your time there was, of course, the Civil War. I mean, and in in recent years, not only uh, in the West, but also in China, the verdict on Jiang Jieshi and the nationalists has shifted a bit in tone. Oh, yeah. Uh, views about, about Zhang have softened. He's not the cartoon villain, you know, sort of wringing his hands and, and, and you know, with an evil laugh. Uh, and it's become pretty common for scholars to really downplay the communist role in the victory against Japan, too. Uh, of course, this is sometimes, you know, shouted down in, in China as historical nihilism. But what do you make of the sort of revision? Uh, I mean, you know, these days it's almost like 
the who lost China debates of the 1940s, and 1950s have been revived and uh, with a, a, maybe a, a, the suggestion that the U.S. was was duped by the China hands. It was Well, you know, I don't know if you've seen this uh, new book by John Pomfret. I sure have. We just actually spoke to John. We had a, we had a very, very lengthy conversation with him. We both just read his book cover to cover, yeah. I think it's really two different books. The part before he deals with the Chinese communists, I found fascinating about the fundamental attraction between these two countries based on their on their fundamental interests. Never running smooth and probably never will, but always present, this need to somehow find ways of working together. But when you get to the part about the communists, I think it's total baloney. Mm. He fails to get some of the most important points, like the fact that Mao only became Mao and leader of the party in the struggle against Stalin, the ideological struggle against Stalin and the people that Stalin sent in. Now, this was never public on the surface, but I know good and well it was true because I took part in some of those training sessions. Yeah, I knew that you would have real issues with that. I mean, he... he pulls up stuff from the Soviet archives to suggest that this person or that person was actually receiving considerably more by way of marching orders from Stalin or was, you know... Uh, yes, right. and he greatly exaggerates the amount of aid they got from Stalin. Okay. I know when I was in Yunnan, they got some money, but not a whole lot. Yeah, I, I figured that there were a lot of people who were going to take serious issue with those claims in his book. And I know, for example, um, as late as 19... 19- 60, I was in a training session for high-ranking cadre, which was on the subject of political economy, which was Mao's critique of Stalin. Well, I mean, there's no question that after 57 there had been a significant break, but we're talking about, you know, during the war and and, and from 46 to 49, the level of aid. Well, I was told way back, that on practice and on contradiction were written in as a critique of Stalin's piece on dialectical materialism, that Mao considered Stalin a mechanical materialist, that he didn't really understand dialectics. As Stalin announced that there were no contradictions in socialist society, and Mao argued that socialist society was the most contradictory of any any uh, system in history. So there were really serious uh, contentions, but never in public. Mm-hmm. But speaking of Stalin, you know, he, he still had a tremendous amount of influence in China. And in fact, in, in your own story, from, you know, what I understand, uh, your first imprisonment in solitary confi- uh, confinement was a result of Stalin accusing you uh, of being a spy. Um, and he had also arrested your friend, uh, the left-wing activist and journalist, Anna Louise Strong. Can you explain why Stalin had it in for you and Anna Louise? <laughs> well, I think Anna Louise was too honest for his liking. You know, she wasn't a good girl. She didn't listen if she didn't agree. And um, what she what she told me was that... Um, when she was on her way back to China, 
what year would this be? I've forgotten. When she was on her way back from the States to China, passing through Moscow, that her friend, a vice minister of, of foreign affairs, invited her to dinner. And at the dinner, he asked her two questions. First was, where do you stand on the conflict between the Soviet Union and Tito? And Anne Louise, who had just written a glowing piece about Tito, said, I have to support you because the Soviet Union is the most important place for world socialism and Tito is, you know, like uh, dispensable. That was her answer. And then he said, well, suppose we had to break with Mao as we have broken with Tito. What position would you take? And she said, I would support Mao because I think the experiments that they're making are the most important, most hopeful thing for the whole human race. And I find Moscow becoming more and more bureaucratic. And the next morning at 5.30, she was arrested. Do you think that uh, your arrest was a result of that because of your association with Anna Louise? I did think, but apparently not. According, you know, the the stuff has been published now. Right. The cable that Stalin sent to Mao that was hand-delivered by um, Mikoyan, Anastas Mikoyan, in January 1949 right at where we, I was living, at Shibepoa. He delivered a written cable from Stalin asking that I be arrested, that I was an imperialist agent. And Mao sent a reply. Two people, myself and George Hatem. Mao sent a reply saying that these Americans were there with them but we consider them honest men. We have no problem with them. Then there's a second cable from Stalin in the name of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, bracket Bolsheviks, very formal, saying the CPSUB has not the slightest doubt that Rittenberg is a vicious imperialist spy adding the word vicious, which I thought was unkind. Do you think his anti-Semitism played into this? Who knows? You don't have any speculation? Who knows? But the um, what, what happened was, according to this material, which has been published by the Woodrow Wilson Institute, and the Russian, the Russian professor who dug the original cables out of the archives was good enough to send me copies of it. That's how I got it. So, um, Stalin had lost a diplomatic secret. Namely, Chiang Kai-shek had asked him to mediate, uh, reaching a solution in which Chiang Kai-shek would have had south of the Yangtze and Mao north of the Yangtze. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, London and Washington had also been asked by Jiang to mediate. And 
before Stalin had a chance to answer. He was going to say no. Before he had a chance to answer, the other two capitals said no, and the whole story was published. So he felt that his thunder had been stolen, and he was sure that the leak must have come from the Chinese party. And there was there were two Russian doctors in Yan'an when I got there, a surgeon and an internist, who both... I went to Orlov, the surgeon. I went to his cave and had a huge amount of radio equipment on a shelf uh, <laughs> up in the cave. So he was in daily contact. And this material showed that Orlov sent a cable to Stalin saying that there was this American Rittenberg who was very trusted by the Chinese leaders, but who claimed to have studied Chinese language for one year in America, but it was completely impossible that anyone could learn Chinese that well in that one fluency. year. Right. Therefore, it must be a spy. <laughs> we get punished for strange things. Yeah, <laughs> I think you know, being punished for speaking Chinese is <laughs> it's not unusual. <laughs> So, Sydney, during your first detention, you were actually offered the chance to go back to the U.S. or yes. to, to stay in prison to await the results of the investigation. Yes. And you ended up choosing to stay and ended up staying for six more years. Uh, why? Why did you decide to stay at that point? It really wasn't a choice. You know, I mean, I, I never hesitated for a minute. Okay. First of all, I'm a physical wreck. You know, I'm a nervous wreck. So I'm going to go back to the States and frighten my friends and family and so on. <laughs> the other thing is, what am I going to do? Work for McCarthy? <laughs> if I go back, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I didn't know it would be five more years, but uh, I, I never thought of going back. After your release, you worked at Beijing Radio for a number of years. Um, did you ever have any misgivings about the propaganda work you, you were doing? And a sort of related question, I mean, you've said of the great leap forward that the production figures were grossly exaggerated. Everybody lied. I think that's in your book. Uh, when did you start realizing that everybody was lying? Much later, years later. Years later. I, I was carried away by the propaganda. You know, I went to this village near the city of Tianjin, and I saw with my own eyes the wheat growing, stacked up together. You know, it, it was so thick that they had to have kids with a rope between the rows waving it back and forth so they could get sunshine and fresh air. And little did I know that the wheat had been transplanted from other fields. It was just a, a, a Potemkin village. Yeah. Wow. But I bought it all completely. And, and nowadays, uh, you know, you kind of seem to accept that there was a, a huge number of deaths, deaths in the tens of millions during, during the Great Leap Forward famine. Yes. Uh, yes. How did you come to believe that? Were you aware at all during the, the time of the actual famine we that something not. was terribly amiss? We were not at all. I remember there was a feature written by someone in the English radio section. And um, I decided the lead wasn't strong enough. And I wrote a lead which said that um, in the new China, 
unlike the famine-ridden old days, nobody went hungry, nobody ever starved. And the senior editor wouldn't pass that. He crossed it out, and I said, why? He said, because it's not true. And I was astonished. Interesting. I thought it was true. And was that partly because you were living a very privileged life? You yes. know, you write in your book about you, you had a, I mean, you had a driver uh, at a yes. time when nobody had a car in, in yes. China. Whatever there was, we had it. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about the years uh, between, say, 1961 and 65. And this time, after Peng Dehua had, had criticized Mao for the Great Leap Forward, he went into something of an eclipse. Uh, it, it, some people called it the sort of Liu Deng Interregnum. What, what was your attitude during that period? I mean, it's been said of the, by the really doctrinaire Maoists that that was Soviet revisionism, that that was, you know, a kind of capitalist roading period. What did you make of that period? Were you engaged in any of the sort of political struggles in that time? Because there were people on the of the ardent left who thought that the adoption of Soviet um, kind of heavy industry first planned economics was was a deviation. In that time, actually, I was my main activity was working on the Mao translations. So I was not at the radio; I was at a separate uh, translation place. I see, and. Um, I was getting sort of fed up. I, I saw that was my first real doubt about Mao. I think it was 63 when he wrote a... Con because I was reading the internal documents at that time. I was reading at the bureau chief level. And on foreign policy documents, I got just about everything right up from the top. And uh, I remember sitting there in the documents reading room and seeing Mao writing about the Four Clears mm -hmm. campaign against corruption in the countryside. And I remember reading Mao said, Jeji Dojang, Yi Draju Ling, class struggle, it works. Mm -hmm. Grasp it and it works. And I remember thinking to myself, it works, but is it right? Hmm. And that was a totally new thought. I think the first I ever had. And I was a little shocked, and I thought, hey, what do you know? I mean, they're the, they're the leaders. They're the Central Committee. They're the Marxists. They know. So I suppressed that thought. But that's where it started. And when they demanded that I come back to radio and take part in the Four Clears movement at radio, I refused. But this is, this is an early harbinger of the Cultural Revolution, of, of yeah. things to come. It was like a dress rehearsal in a way. And that, you know, to me, one of the things I find fascinating about your story is that you were actually about my age, your mid-40s at the start of the Cultural Revolution, yet you took a leading role at one of the rebel groups at the State Broadcasting Administration. Uh, you know, the people around you, the most of the Red Guards were very young, some of them, you know, high school students and much, much younger than you. Did you ever feel out of place at that time? Or what was your relationship to, to the people around you? And if I can just append a, another question onto that, it always seems from your book um, and the film The Revolutionary that your wife, uh, Wang Yulin, was always a sensible voice. The voice of reason. <laughs> the voice yeah. of reason, trying to calm the hot-headed Sydney Rittenberg down. Well, she was off at school, remember. 
mm. all those years she was away at school. You'd only see her on the weekends. Yeah, not every weekend. She wouldn't uh, come back every weekend. You know, during the famine years, we didn't know about the rural famine, but we knew that um, people were having edema, malnutrition edema. But nobody said it was because of malnutrition. People said it's a virus, it's something in the mm-hmm. water or something like no, that. Uh, and Yulin was all swollen up. And I I took fruit and meat out to the school to give her, and I got balled out. You think I'm going to eat this special stuff while the other students are going without? She wouldn't touch it. But um, so she wasn't that sensible I mean, either. <laughs> we support each other. But my first, you know, that was 60... Three, reading that document was the first stirring. And then in 65, the year before the Cultural Revolution, I really started tearing it. There was a meeting of the general branch. That was the whole foreign language department of the party. And I said, it seems to me that what we're doing is all wrong The party constitution says that the masses are supposed to exercise surveillance over the party, oversight. But we have it set up so that we have these snitches, really, I didn't call them that, through whom we exercise surveillance over the masses. And it looks to me that that's backwards from what it should be. And, of course, I was a minority of one. But, and I think that's when I began to arouse suspicion, probably. But that, did that also sort of prime you for the Cultural Revolution because yeah. you were dissatisfied with the way the party was? At first, I wasn't joining anything. Then I, I was walking home one night. This was in November 66. And I saw there was a meeting going on in the TV theater, blown radio. And I went in just out of curiosity, and I see there's a young technician from the technical department who is um, accusing the head of the radio security department, which is a pretty big department, accusing the head of the department of suppressing him for participating in the Cultural Revolution. This young guy is a party member, and he comes from a poor peasant household. So there are no little pigtails that you could latch onto. His name was Ma Wanyo. And the head of the security department, Peng Bao, had transferred him to what was called the concentration camp. It was a special building in which all the suspicious characters were required to report for study every day, only allowed to go home on the weekends. So he was transferred there as a guard. But Peng Bao, the security chief, wrote a letter to the head of the concentration camp saying, I'm sending you this guy because he's a dangerous radical. So... He's supposed to be a guard, but I want you to watch him. And Peng Bao is sitting there absolutely denying everything. He says, you're, you're our comrade, you're our class brother. How could, you, how could I do such a thing? 
And as he's talking, the secretary, number two guy in the security department, who's a young guy named Yunda, he suddenly jumps to his feet and he says, Pumba, you're lying. And he has a copy of the letter, which he reads. (laughs) And all 13 members of the security department joined the rebel regiment on the spot. So I joined too. That's how I got involved. (laughs) So that was part one. I trust you'll join us again next week for the second half of our conversation with Sidney Rittenberg. He has lots more to say, some truly memorable reminiscences, and some fascinating perspectives. If you like the Cynical Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really does help, and it means a lot to us. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anne LeCheng and Soraya Durabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Cynica at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Cynica Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.